Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Good morning, you guys can have a seat. Good morning. It's great to see you guys this morning. We are wrapping up our study of, our, of the book of Ephesians. We've been in this study since April, around four months as we've been walking through the book of Ephesians. And we're going to wrap it up this morning. If you are new with us, welcome. We are honored to have you here. If you're joining us online, welcome. It is a blessing for you to join us this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to join me in chapter 6, we're looking at the last part, verses 13 through 24. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles around you uh, underneath the chairs. Go ahead and grab one of those if you want to. If you like it, take it home. It'll be a gift from us to you. Ephesians chapter 6, wrapping up. While you're turning there, a couple of things. Next week, we're going to start a new series next week, and uh, we're calling it Unsung, Lesser Known Characters. Probably, if we were to name some different people and their stories, uh, if we were to name them, you would know their story within the scripture, or you'd know something about them based off uh, their their recorded story in the scriptures. And, and they're amazing; they're incredible, right? It's filled. It's a it's a book. The Bible is filled with the book of uh, God's extraordinary work, right? But there are probably some that uh, have just as extraordinary lives and were used in extraordinary ways by, by God within his redemptive work of all of us. And so we're going to look at their lives, and uh, we're going to start that next week. would encourage you to join us. There are some incredible stories that we'll look at over that series. So come back and hang out with us for Unsung starting next week. You may have also noticed, uh, if you weren't here for the countdown, you may have also noticed a little piece of paper in the seats around you. Uh, it's our time of the year where we are partnering with our strategic partner, Helping Hand of Myrtle Beach, where we help kind of fill their pantry. And so those are the items. If God leads you or if you want to participate in that, uh, those are the items that we would invite you to uh, collect and bring back. You'll see the tables in the lobby. And so we'll be doing that as we work uh, to help them uh, fill their pantry for the fall. Okay? All right. So we're, uh, we're in Ephesians 6. I want to go back real quick to last week's text. It will set up this week's text because they need to flow together. And if you weren't here, I want to kind of bring you up to speed on that. And if you were here, I want to remind you because sometimes we forget. All right. So Ephesians 6, let's start in verse 10, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We looked at that text in depth last week, and we said that we're in a battle. 
there is a war going on. And we looked at the schemes and we looked at the strength of the devil who is our enemy, who is real and is our enemy. And we said that in order to, to have this battle, in order to fight in this battle, we need to stand. And we said that every boxer and wrestler can, can amen that. They'll tell you that it all begins with your stance, that, that if you want to be an effective fighter, if you want to be an effective wrestler, if you want to fight in this battle, we got to develop the right stance and it, the right posture because it begins there. It produces stability, and stability produces longevity and perseverance, all right? So how do we defeat the devil? Stand, as Paul would continually say that over and over within our text. That is a baseline command, right? None of the armor that we're going to discuss today will be any good for us if we're not in a fighting stance, right? If we're just laying on the couch or if we're idle, if we're not involved, if we're thinking we can just do this without, without being in that posture of being ready, then it's not, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what armor we have. But if we're in that stance and we're ready for spiritual conflict because we know it's coming, it's here, right? We know it's there. We know there's a conflict here as the scriptures teach us. We're expecting the fight. We're in our stance. Now with being in our stance, we want to ask the question, what weapons do I have at my disposal for this battle? And we were reminded that you and I can stand first and foremost because Jesus stood for us. And we're going to reflect on that at the end of our time together in communion. Our eternal home is secure. And in the meantime, Paul says to stand and be strong in the Lord, not in our strength, but in his strength and his might. And then he says, oh, and here's what you need for the battle. Here's the armor you need to wear. And that's where we start in our text today. Let's look at verses 13 through 17 in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Verse 14, stand therefore having, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. 15, and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, Paul, in writing this letter, and as he's closing out this letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Christians there, no doubt he's chained to a soldier or he's in house arrest with soldiers around. No doubt as he's writing this last part, he is looking upon the soldier's armor and he sees it as a great illustration to impress upon us what God has given us. If you notice back in verse 13, it says, therefore, take up the whole armor of, of who? Of God, not of our whole armor. It's not made by us. It's not made by human hands. We need a divine armor. We need an armor that's been forged in God's fire, right? And he says to us to take up the whole armor, not just part of it. Don't just put different pieces on at different times. He says, put it all on. Why? Because if you only put parts of it on, well, then you have a, a weak place, right? There is a, a place that can be exploited, right? And we know the devil knows that, and he'll exploit that. And so he says, put on the whole armor as he teaches us what that armor is. If we're going to stand firm in our stance, we're going to need all of God's armor that he's given to us to put on. And so we're going to work through these pieces of armor starting in verse 14. He starts with the belt of truth. 
And now the belt for a soldier, uh, they would draw it tight, right? They would draw it tight, and they, they would draw up the tunic that they wore. It's kind of a long gown uh, kind of thing, and they would draw that up, which would free up their legs so they could move about. They would have a lot more mobility, and they would tighten it. It would also tighten the scabbard that held their sword, so everything was in its place. And Paul tells us we need to put on the belt of truth, now, there is some debate about what, what exactly he means here. Does this mean the truth in sense of doctrine, uh, what we believe about God, or does this mean truth in the sense of integrity or faithfulness? Commentators, again, they wrestle back and forth, and there's some debate out there about which one. But here's what I would say. Whichever way we take it, whichever way, it's important for us to understand that it is the truth, the doctrine that's worked into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. And then it produces through us a sincerity of mind and heart, a wholeheartedness and integrity. So, so the truth that God gives to us through his word, through, through Christ speaking to us, through what has happened in the gospel, coming into our lives, putting it into our lives, will produce out of us right, a sincerity of mind and an integrity. So that has to become a part of us is what he's saying. Listen, it needs to be tight around you. You need to have this. It needs to become such a part of us that it affects everything that we, that we do because it informs everything that we are so that we are people of truth and integrity. And then we'll be able to resist the devil in that day. Think about it. How does the devil attack? What is the, one of the ways that the devil attempts to break us down? To convince us that we're hypocrites to tell us that we say one thing, but we, but we believe another or we do another. Right? We know that attack. We know that flaming arrow that he shoots at us. And the Apostle Paul is saying, listen, you have to understand, we have to understand what this great weapon of truth really is for us. It needs to be so rooted into our heart, into our mind, that, that what we are on the outside is what we are on the inside, right? That what's in us is coming out of us, right? That they match. So that when you hear Satan say, when you hear the accuser, as Jesus called it, the accuser, the liar, when you hear that, that accusation that, that you are a hypocrite, and you, you, we can honestly say, you know, sometimes I am because we're not perfect. We're being sanctified. We're not there yet. But we also know that what he's accusing us of is ultimately a lie because of the, the grace of God at work within us, that it is making us more and more into the person, into the likeness of Jesus Christ, so that what we know and believe in the truth that is on the inside is flowing out of us on the outside. He says, so have that belt of truth on. Then in verse 14, he moves on from the belt to the breastplate of righteousness, now, there is a debate about which type of breastplate because the soldiers would wear different types, and I'm not going to get into that debate. But the function of the breastplate was to protect the vital organs, mainly the heart, to ward off the thrust of a deadly sword. And we've said that this battle is not from a distance. It's up close and personal. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. And so Paul is saying, you need to put on, we need to put on the breastplate of righteousness He's saying that in order to stand firm in the days of evil, that we must have a life that's characterized by holiness, that is a gospel moral righteousness. Now, commentators, they don't just debate about the type of breastplate, but they debate about what he means by righteousness. 
consistently talked about imputed righteousness, Paul did in his letters, that Christ's righteousness was imputed to us. Is he talking about that here? Or is he talking about the righteousness which the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us that we are gospelly, morally transformed? You know, once we were sinners, now we are more and more becoming like Christ. And again, here, here's, my, here's my thought. Whichever Paul has in focus, this is certainly true, that our growth in God's grace is never apart from the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ to us because it grounds us into our acceptance by God because of the righteousness that is, is not, it's not in us, it's in him. And that more and more that we, that we understand that and the more and more we grow by, the, by understanding his righteousness within us and the spirit that is there turning us, transforming us into the image of Christ. And so Paul is saying that out of that righteousness of Christ that is credited to us, that's what imputed means, right? So out of that, that we are accepted, not because you and I deserve it, not because we have done something for God to accept us, but because of what Jesus has done, which we will reflect on at the end of our time, and what Jesus deserves, which is that perfect and holy righteousness, which he is, right? Out of his work for us, we have an imputed righteousness, and from that imputed righteousness flows a life in which we are serious about growing in our godliness so that a devout and holy life, moral uprightness, you could say, is essential then for the battle with Satan. And again, why is that essential? And it's essential because Satan wants to attack our conscience. And we'll see that a little bit more as we keep going. And I hope you notice, and if you haven't, Jesus is all these things. He's truth. And he's told us the truth sets us free. He's our righteousness because he's perfect. And then the next one, he's our peace. In verse 15, Paul says, And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. I call these gospel peace shoes, our GPS. Now, the soldiers would wear a half boot. Uh, it was open-toed. It was a leather boot, and, and it would have these nails, uh, like uh, nail-studded sole, right? And then they would lace it up, and they tie it around their ankles and their shins. It wasn't made for running. You wouldn't see a soldier running in, in this uh, boot. They would fall you know, very quickly. But it was made for traction. It was made for stability, you know, to stand firm, our gospel peace shoes. So Paul is reminding us here that our ability to march for God and to stand firm is dependent upon our experience of the effect of the gospel. The experience that we have of the effect of the gospel. And you say, well, what is the effect of the gospel? But it's the realization that you and I have peace with God. That's what the gospel has brought to us. That Jesus took the wrath that we were to have from a holy and righteous God, placed it upon himself, and through his death and his resurrection, his conquering of that, we now have peace as we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, as we respond to his invitations. So the realization that we have peace with God, that we are accepted by God, and that he desires for us the fullness of his blessing, that is the effect of the gospel. Why is that? Important. Well, the great effect of the gospel is peace with God and then peace with each other. 
And we've said that, that if Satan gets, if the devil gets you and I to fight one another, instead of collectively unifying fighting against him, he wins. All he has to do is to get you and I into a battle. And he wins. It's very effective and easy for him. So in order for us not to be in a battle with each other, we need to have peace with each other. But first, we have to have peace vertically with Jesus. And we get that through what he's offered to us. And as he brings his peace, we have peace with the Father. And as we have peace with the Father, we can go peaceful horizontally with those around us, right? And then when that happens, all of that happening, it then compels us to share the gospel with others. That's why we're talking about shoes, Because we want others to experience that same peace with the Father and with us. And so Paul is saying here, you want to resist the devil, we must have experienced the peace with God. That it leads us to experience it with others. Only the gospel does that. The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks every barrier down that would separate us and cause us to battle one another. And that peace, in turn, prepares us. It motivates us outward to share the gospel with others so that they may enjoy the same peace that we have. So what, again, does Satan do when he brings accusations against us? He says, God doesn't love you. You're not, you're not made right. You haven't been made right or reconciled with God. You're still sinful, and he's way too pure to look on your sin, right? He's holy. You haven't been reconciled or rescued or redeemed by him or, and to him. And Paul says, and this is so important, this is so important. And Paul says, if you're not ready to battle with Satan, he says, you're not ready to battle with Satan until you know that you're at peace with God. You're not ready to battle with the devil until you know you're at peace with God. And here's why. Because if you're at peace with him, there's no one left to fear. If you're at peace with the Father, if you're at peace with God, there's no one left to fear, not even the devil. But if you're not sure that you're at peace with God through a relationship with Jesus Christ and repentance and faith, then there is no situation more fearful than being an enemy of the Father. That's why he says this is so critical. This is so important. What do these things do for us? They rob us of the boldness and the authority we ought to have in this world. The grace-filled boldness. When the world sees a Christian, a believer, a disciple with a a pure and clean conscience, at peace with God, knowing that what he, he or she believes as a Christian, that God has written that, that God has thought it, and now he's teaching it. Not something that's been made up on their own, not something that's been made up by others, but, but something that's been made up by God, by his word, that's, that's believed with a pure conscience at peace with God. That, that disciple is scary to the world. And if you, if you don't believe me, just look at what happened to the disciples in the first century. Read the Bible. Scary to the world. Because that disciple does not fear the world. Why? Because we're at peace with the creator 
of the world who's in sovereign control, God. Where does that come from? Jesus. So we have peace with God through Jesus to have peace with God forever. So Paul says this is vital. Then he keeps going in verse 16. He talks about the shield of faith. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And when Paul talks about the shield, he's not talking about the, the little... They had two different types of shields. They had a small one that they would wear on their arm. But then they had this whole body shield that they could truly get every, their whole body behind, which was also made to, to put out the fiery arrows that they would shoot in battle. It was specifically designed to do that. And so Paul's saying, we need to take up that shield, meaning we need to have a living trust in God. Not a dying trust in God, which I would describe as, it's just heaven only for me. I just want to trust in God for heaven. I'll take care of my time here. No, we need to have a living trust in God, a day-to-day trust in God, and a promise, a trust in God for that promise of heaven. But he says we need to have a living trust, a faith. We need to have a living faith in God. He's saying if we want to, if our trust is entirely in God, then then exactly what circumstance, even if it has a demonic presence, can cause us to fear? He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so if our trust is in him, and as we see God as the sovereign good God over all things, what circumstance, what opposition can break us down? He says we need to take up that shield of what arrow? And now, now listen, I am not trying to diminish the heartache and heartbreak of what we experience in life. There's certainly fiery arrows that really, really, really hurt. I'm not diminishing that. I'm not trying to make light of that. But we must have a faith and a trust in him which is our shield. Paul says, take it up. Take it up. For by faith we see the unseen. What's the unseen? The future hope. No matter what. That you and I are free and secure. And then he goes to verse 17 and he says, and take the helmet of salvation. Now, if you were to flip back in your Bible, in Isaiah 59, you don't have to do this. But in Isaiah 59, Isaiah describes God putting on a breastplate of righteousness, placing the helmet of salvation on. And he goes out and he defeats the enemy and he saves the people as the divine warrior. And Paul here, no doubt, borrowing from that passage, he changes the image a little bit, though. In Isaiah's passage, the helmet of salvation is what God does. But in Ephesians, it's what he gives. You notice that? Look what he says. And take the helmet of salvation. We take it because he's giving it. Consider the helmet then placed on our heads by Jesus' nail-scarred wrists, which, again, we will reflect on at the end of our time together. The helmet of salvation assures us that whatever happens, whatever happens, we are saved, 
And we will experience victory in Jesus Christ, no matter what. Paul seems especially concerned to point to this assurance of salvation. He's saying that if we're going to go out and stand firm in the days of evil, we must have that vital hope, that vital sense that, that God has saved us. He saved us uh, of our present. He saved us for our future. That salvation is eternal. And he's saying that that knowledge that we are saved, that knowledge that we are secure, the knowledge, remember it's the helmet, so it's on our head, that knowledge that nothing can pluck us from God's hand. That knowledge of Romans 8, where Paul wrote, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor powers, nor principalities, nor nakedness, nor famine, nor peril, nor sword can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. He says that knowledge that we are God's, that we belong to him, that we are kept by him, that, that we are saved by him, that we are safe in him, that we are secure in him. That knowledge is vital to the whole of our life as a Christian. In other words, to resist the devil in this battle, we must be assured of our salvation. Why do we need that constant reminder of assurance? Because it's one of the ways that Satan attacks the most. It's the most frequent, if you ask me. How's he do it? He points to their assurance of salvation. He says, does he really love you? Does he love me or does he not? Has he really saved you or has he not? Are you really in Christ or are you not? Are you really God's child or are you not? And the apostle Paul says, listen, you've got to have the helmet of salvation on to be assured of your security, all of the ways that he would accuse us, the devil, the enemy, has been paid for, has been covered, past, present, and future. In Christ, he holds us, and the Father holds him. Who can pluck us out of their hands? And he's saying, you need, I need to know that. And if we know it, and if you know it, he's saying, just what is it that Satan can threaten to take away from you then? Because if you have Jesus, you have everything. Verse 17, he talks about the sword of the Spirit. He says, hey, make sure that you are armed with the Word of God. <laughs> make sure that you are armed with the Word of God, for it is the sword of the Spirit. Right? It's the word of God which calls us to faith in Christ, right? Paul says faith comes by hearing. He teaches us that. It's the word of God that calls us to faith and into his family. If you were to study Jesus' life in the Gospels and you were to read as he walked the earth in his ministry. He's walking amongst the children of Israel who have, who have been a people who have failed to hear and heed the message of the prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years. And what does Jesus do? He calls them with the word to the word because he's the word. And what does he say? Come, follow me. The very same invitation he invites you if you're not a follower, he presents that to you and he says to you, come, follow me. In repentance and faith, follow me. 
And by that word, he called them, he calls us into discipleship, calls us into that salvation, he calls us into service, he calls us into growth and grace, and so on and so on. But not only is it the word that calls us into faith, but it's also the word that God uses to build us up. 2 Timothy 3, Paul writes to Timothy in verses 16 and 17, and this is what he says about Scripture. He says, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, 17, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. So in other words, Paul's saying, listen, it's not only that the Word of God calls us to salvation, it's that the Word of God is there to build us up in that salvation, right? It's there to equip us. It's there to correct us. It's there to instruct us. It's going to challenge us, right? It's going to rebuke us. It's going to change us. It's going to transform us. It's going to build us up in what God intends our lives to be in Jesus Christ. Paul says it's essential. It's an essential component of the Christian's battle against the principalities and the powers that are against us, that we possess this sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I like one writer, he said this about the sword of the Spirit. He said, the only offensive weapon of the Christian, it's the only weapon, right? It's the only one that we can go on offense with. Everything else is defensive, right? The sword is also defensive, but it's, it's the one we can go on offense with. Riff? riff? Yeah, with. <laughs> Laugh with me. With me, not at me. Notice, it's very careful with my words. You can laugh at me, it's fine. The only offensive weapon of the Christian is the sword of the Spirit, meaning the sword which the Spirit gives. That is the Word of God. There is nothing to limit this expression. It is that which God has spoken. His Word, the Bible. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It is the wisdom of God and the power of God. It has a self-evidencing light. It commends itself to the reason and conscience. It has the power not only of truth but of divine truth. Our Lord promised to give His disciples a word and wisdom which all their adversaries would not be able to resist in opposition to all error to all false philosophy, to all false principles and morals, to all the suggestions of the devil, the soul's simple and sufficient answer is the word of God. He says, remember David saying, the word of God makes me wiser than my enemies. This puts to flight all the powers of darkness. The Christian finds this to be true in his individual experience. It dissipates his doubts. It drives away his fears. It delivers him from the power of Satan. It's why we spend our time together digging into the Word. I am not your Bible. We have been given God's Word, all of us, each one of us. That's why we have Bibles available. And if you don't have the Word of God as your own, please take one of those Bibles. Read it, study it, meditate on it. Let God's Word transform your life from the inside out. It is our sword. If you remember back, and maybe you don't remember, but when Jesus was tempted by the devil, and I shared this earlier in the week, or a couple weeks, and when he was tempted by the devil, how did he resist the devil? He quoted scripture. 
Let that sink in. Put on the whole armor of God. Let's keep going, verses 18 to 20. Praying, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that, my, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, verse 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. <clears throat> Prayer is the energy that enables the Christian to wear the armor and wield the sword. We cannot fight the battle in our own power. We don't have the strength. We don't have the ability. We fight it in his power. I've already said that. And prayer is what Paul says is going to be what wraps it all together. Notice what he says in verse 18. He says five different things about prayer in one sentence, in one, one verse. Pray always. He says, pray always. Never, never hang up on God. Right? You wake up in the morning whether it's before your feet hit the ground. I use the shower in the morning to, to wake me up into that prayer. As soon as the water hits my face, it's the trigger to begin praying. I don't say amen when I turn the water off. I continually commune with the Father throughout the day. And when we do that, we never need to say when we come into your presence. Why? Because we never left it. Pray always, he says. Pray with all prayer. All, it's a weird thing, right? Pray with all prayer. With all prayer. What, Paul, what are, you, what are you talking about? Pray with all prayer. Well, there's different, different aspects of prayer, right? Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, intercession. We have prayers that we just simply sit in awe and adore the Father and all that he has done, who he is, that only he could do, right? Prayers of adoration of all, confession, recognizing who he is and who we are, holy and righteous, and who we are, sinful, only redeemed through Christ. Thanksgiving, that should lead to thanksgiving, right? That, that knowing who he is and who we are, we should be thankful for who he, you know, he's given to us, his son, our savior, Jesus, thanksgiving, and for all the ways that he's supplied himself into our lives. Supplication. As a good father, he wants to hear our needs. Now, his response to hearing our needs may not be what you think it should be, but I promise you, as a good father, it'll be the best response you could have. Intercession. We should be praying for one another, which is something else he says here, but pray. Then he says, pray with, with eyes open is what I wrote. He, say, he says, pray. Be alert, right? Keep alert. Pray with eyes open. Now, now, I'm not saying you always need to pray with your eyes open, but my point is, is that you stay alert, right? Watch and pray is repeated very often in Scripture. We see it throughout. Pray with our eyes open. We close our eyes as, as a way uh, in prayer, as a way of removing anything that would distract us being focused on the prayer. But, but stay alert. Keep on praying, right? He says, uh, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep on praying. And here's where we, we rely on finding Finding Nemo, finding Dory, where we're just going to just keep praying, just keep praying, just keep praying. Now it's in your head and you won't forget. And if you haven't seen that movie, she, Dory is swimming and she says, just to keep swimming, just keep swimming, just keep, you, okay. <laughs> just keep praying. Persevere in prayer. Don't give up. 
Don't give up. We prayed for my father for over two years to come to church. Don't give up. God hears, God moves in his time, and it's perfect. Don't give up. Pray for each other. The Lord's prayer begins with our father, not my father. Think about that. In Jesus' teaching, right within it, he reminds us that we are to do this together. We pray as part of the great family of God, and we should be praying for other members of that family. And then you see what happens in 19 and 20, the humility of Paul. He asked for prayer. This is the apostle Paul. This is, this is Paul. If he needs prayer, we all need prayer. And he's asking for prayer. Look at his request for prayer, though. Look at what he's asking for. Please pray that I would be able to continue to boldly proclaim the gospel. Notice he, is, he isn't asking that it be done in his power, that it would be done in his knowledge. And we certainly know that he was smart. Look at his prayer. He's like, please pray that, that the words would be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to share the gospel, which I am in chains for. I mean, he's asking them. It's so, it's, it's, it's so humble, the position of humility. It's a powerful picture that none of us, none of us are without the need for prayer from others, which is why I would highlight our prayer team at, that is available at the end of every service. They wear these little green tags, and we have a prayer center in the back. They would love the opportunity, if you would need it, to pray with you, to pray for you. That is what God has gifted them to do and has led them to be a part of that team. And so they're around the auditorium. They, they, it is available is what I'm telling you. Let's keep going. We'll finish up. 21 to 24, so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. <laughs> this word, this name, Tychicus, the beloved, I, I, I promise you I practice that all week. And then I get to it and my brain just shuts down. It's like, good luck. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Verses 23 and 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. As he begins this final paragraph, you can't help but see the tenderness in Paul's words as he closes this letter. Knowing the Ephesian church, the Christians in the church in Ephesus are praying for him. They've been in prayer for him. What does Paul understand about that? He knows that it's honorable. It's honorable. It's uniting for him to let them know how their prayers are being answered in his life. It's respectable to let others know how their prayers are being answered as they pray for us. And in order to do that, he can't go himself. He's going to send his beloved brother and faithful minister, Tychicus. I read an inter interesting bit about Tychicus. His, his name comes from Tyche, which is the, the Greek word for fortune or fortunate. You, you, see, you see what that means to us? It means Paul's ministry partner, his, his faithful uh, brother and ministry partner, his name's Lucky. Lucky is Paul's compadre. 
Lucky, his friend, his brother. And so Lucky gets to go to the Ephesian brothers and sisters and encourage them. What an incredible commission that Paul has given to Tychicus, to Lucky. So Jesus-like too, isn't it? As Paul thinks about the church and those at the church. One writer described it like this. He said, it's Jesus on the cross looking down at John and Mary. Where Jesus says, John, let me introduce you to, to my mother, my father's you know, been gone for many years. I've had the responsibility of caring for my mother, but now, John, it's your job. He's hanging on the cross. Jesus is hanging on the cross, paying the penalty of sins of the world, my sin, your sin. And what's he doing? He's thinking about his mother. He's thinking about his friends. He's thinking about the disciples. I mean, if there was ever a man who had a right to be so self-preoccupied, it was Jesus on the cross. But even on the cross, he's thinking about others. And then we get to Paul. He's the one in, he's in chains. And if you know anything about Paul's story, the, the beatings and the, 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 the torture and all that happened to him because of the gospel, he's the center of Satan's attacks, right? And yet his concern is the Ephesian Christians that they may be comforted and encouraged. So Jesus-like. Paul had been captured by the grace of Jesus Christ, and that led him to be others-focused always. It's a great lesson for us. It's a great lesson for us. Let's finish, 23 and 24. There's a double benediction here as he closes the letter. A benediction is simply... Uh, a good word, a blessing. And it's a little bit different. Throughout Scripture, uh, you see letters closed or opened with grace and peace. You hear that throughout Scripture, especially even all the way back into the Old Testament. Paul even does that. But here, if you noticed, it's peace and grace. And it's not even just peace and grace. It's peace, love, and faith and grace. Now, the peace does, doesn't mean cessation of hostility, it doesn't just mean that, which would be a part of that. But in the Bible, peace entails the enjoyment of the total well-being that God brings to his people. And so when Paul says, peace be to you, he's saying, may you as fellow believers in Jesus, as he would say, brothers and sisters, because we have been united in faith by the work of the Holy Spirit, he says, may you know the fullness of God's peace. May you know the fullness of God's favor, having been reconciled to God so that you would have that peace with him, having been reconciled now to one another so that you are a part of his family. May you know together, together, the fullness of the blessing that God brings and bestows. Peace be to the brothers. And then he says, and love. Now he's talking about your love or God's love. He's talking about God's love. He's saying, may you experience, may you taste God's love. He's, he's full, he's fatherly and gracious and free, and he's overflowing with love. May you know the total enjoyment that he only bestows, that only comes from him. May you know his love. And then he says, with faith. After all this, he says, faith itself is God's gift to us. Paul is acknowledging that the, the believers at Ephesus were, had faith and that their faith 
you know, was to rely upon the Holy Spirit to continue, that we continue to trust in the Holy Spirit as he continues to work in and through our lives. May God continue to grant that faith is what he was saying to them. And then in 24, he finishes with grace. Two things. When Paul says grace to you, he's saying may God continue his grace to you. May it stay on you. What is God's grace? It's his free, undeserved, unearned favor. We don't deserve it. We certainly didn't earn it. But he's saying when, when God gave his son, when Jesus finished the work, he secured grace for us. And he says, may it continue. And may we continue to rest in it. Notice the finals, final words. He says, who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. He's reminding us that God's peace, God's love, God's grace it's for those and only those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not pull away from that. He does not shy away from saying God's love, God's grace, God's peace is for everyone. He's saying it's for those in God's family. Now, there is a common grace that is in the world where breath and oxygen, all those things are supplied. But this is the special grace of God. It only comes through a relationship with his son and our savior, Jesus. And that in that, we would love him to the very end. Powerful work that he has done. It brings new life. It brings change, transformation. And we trust in Jesus alone. And we never stop trusting. We never stop resting in Jesus. And listen, as I've already said, this is freely offered to all. But you've got to respond to the invitation. And as we never stop trusting and resting, it never stops growing. And may that be true of us. That, that is to be the experience of every believer. And when you realize what God has done for you, when you realize what Jesus has taken upon himself for you, the only proper response is to grow in love, affection for him. So the Apostle Paul closes the great book of Ephesians with that benediction. And so we close it, our study with that benediction, peace, love, faith, and grace. And today we also, in a special way, get to close this study by taking communion together. So would you pull out your communion cup? If you want to go ahead and pull that, that wafer out, and let me say as you're doing that, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, would you please just observe this morning what Jesus has given us in his word and what Paul has given us in his letters is the commandment to reflect, to remember the cross. And it was given to disciples and followers. And I would just encourage you, if you're still investigating, to ask yourself, why? What's holding me back? What's stopping me from believing in Jesus Christ as the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who gave his life in perfect obedience on the cross, who took the wrath of our sin upon himself, who died on the cross, was buried in a tomb for three days, and then resurrected from the grave, appeared 
to the multitudes before he ascended to the Father's right hand where he is today with the promise that one day he's coming back and there'll be no more tears, there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more battle. And I would encourage you to ask yourself what's keeping you, what's stopping you, what is the hang-up? Is, this, is it a verse of scripture? Is it a, a Christian belief that you just find archaic or old or not relevant? What is it? Identify it. And then actually open the scriptures to see what it says. Don't trust in other people's words. Don't trust in the words of the internet or social media. Do your own study. It's of critical importance eternity hangs in that balance and so if you're not a Christian I would just invite you first of all I hope you know we are so honored that you're here I invite you to observe God gave this to his followers to his believers Jesus gave it to his disciples and so this wafer as we hold it in our hands as we look upon it it reminds us of what Jesus truly gave and given his life. It is the symbol that represents the broken body of Christ. Jesus gave this to us so that we could come back to center. I'm so thankful. I'm so grateful that in his infinite wisdom, he gave us this command, this exhortation, this imperative to, to do this as we gather so that you and I have the opportunity because it is so easy for us to drift away from the gospel. And listen, church, we never drift away from the gospel. It is the power of God that has saved us for eternity. We are to never drift away. We never get over the gospel. You don't believe and then you just move on. No, this was given so that we, we believe. We confess. We believe. We confess. We believe. We confess. We believe. This was given to humble us again because that is the greatest posture that we have for God's work to be done through us in the world around us. And so Jesus, in giving his life, calls us to look back. So I'm invite you, just close your eyes for a second and go with me back to Golgotha and Calvary and see the broken body of Christ on the cross. Picture him looking at you. With only the love of a savior could have. Father, as we take this moment now to recenter, to reflect, God, thank you, thank you that it humbles us again. Let's take this together. If you want to go ahead and open up the bottom part of your little cup, as you're opening that up, 
the juice, a symbol, the pure blood that Jesus shed. The blood that only he could shed to pay in full the penalty of sin. My sin, your sin, the world's sin. He's the only one that could do this. And yet, as you again have your eyes closed, you're you're seeing that blood flowing from his wrist, from his feet, from his back, from his head, from his face. He has endured cross for us what a humbling time to come together and then out of that humility we're called compelled to go outward in grace with truth He's not calling us to go outwards in judgment and condemnation, but in grace and truth as we're centered on his finished work. Father, when we begin to move away from that finished work, I pray, Father, that you do whatever it takes to bring us back that we hear your voice louder than any other voice. We, we respond with courage and obedience and faithfulness quickly so that we don't get too far off center. God, help us to have this image of Christ within our hearts and our minds, knowing what he's done so that our affections may grow deeper and wider. take this together Father as we wrap up this study we're grateful for the words that you inspired through your Holy Spirit for Paul to write we're grateful for the work that is continuing to do in and through our lives through your church we are grateful for the work that you are going to do in the future that we have we have no knowledge of yet And God, as we continue to take one step at a time, one day at a time, keep us centered on Jesus, on his finished work, on his hope that comes through the empty tomb, and let us rest in the promise that one day we're all going to be home because the battle's already won. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen, church.